0: Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Greg Myers. Greg is the Executive Vice President and Chief Digital and Technology Officer of Bristol-Myers Squibb, a global biopharmaceutical company with nearly $48 billion in annual revenue. He's been in that role for nearly a year. He has an extraordinarily strategic role at BMS, leading a cross-disciplinary team that drives better outcomes for patients, while having a profound impact on both the top and bottom lines of the company. I look forward to hearing more about how he has done this through our conversation. Prior to his current role, Greg was the Chief Information and Digital Officer of Syngenta Group in Basel, Switzerland. And prior to that, he was the CIO of Motorola Solutions. Greg, welcome back to Technovation. It's wonderful to speak with you today.
1: Good to see you again, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, well, Greg, I thought we would begin with your role. Uh, you are uh, the Chief Digital and Technology Officer of Bristol Myers Squibb. Maybe take a quick moment and describe uh, BMS's business, if you would.
1: Yeah, so Bristol-Myers Squibb is a biopharmaceutical company. We're uh, about 33,000 employees. We do close to $48 billion in sales. And so basically we make medicines. And uh, particularly we're making medicines for people with pretty serious chronic diseases in the specialty pharma space. So that includes things like cancer and oncology, uh, cardiology, Hematology. We do a lot around autoimmune um, and immunology, which is a, a very interesting sort of novel branch of science. Uh, we do some work in um, neurology, including multiple sclerosis and a few other uh, disease areas as well. So we we cover the gamut of uh, a large number of diseases.
0: Fascinating. Take a moment, if you would, also to describe the two sides of your role. I mentioned you are both the chief digital and technology officer of the organization. What's within your purview uh, as a result of that?
1: There are two parts of my job. I run the IT organization like uh, many other people who would have a CIO title, and that is you know, all the usual suspects in terms of capabilities, infrastructure, business-facing IT, things like that. And then I also am responsible for uh, a burgeoning part of our business called Digital Health, which is really looking at the scientific inquiry around how digital tools will ultimately make their way into the clinic in terms of how patients are diagnosed, treated, and monitored, and how that could create a step change in those areas.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that second part, which is very interesting and needless to say, very nuanced uh, uh, relative to a lot of people who have titles akin to your own. Uh, talk about this burgeoning digital health uh, program. You you offered a little bit of a, a snapshot there, but I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into all that that entails. Um, wh- what are some of the areas that you you and your team are getting involved in? And, and I can only imagine it, that it's a role that has you collaborating with a great number of people across the organization to deliver what you've described. Uh, share a bit more if you would.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe what I'll do, Peter, if it's okay, just kind of give you a high-level flyby, and then I'll sort of maybe drill into that third area. So I I think probably the most um, interesting areas of where technology is applied in the biopharma sector, particularly at Bristol-Myers Squibb, is really in three areas. And at a high level, what we're really trying to do with technology, what we're up to, so to speak, is uh, how we bring more medicines to more patients faster. And once those patients are delivered to them, how do we give them better outcomes? And so there's really three ways that uh, we're doing that. One is an area of research. And so we can talk more about this, but it's a very fascinating area of how drugs are discovered and ultimately designed. And if you think about over the last you know, century or so, we've really been designing uh, drugs primarily through the intuition and creativity of scientists. And more and more of that's becoming a computational uh, opportunity. That's actually a very fascinating space, which I'd love to talk more about. The second is once we get uh, drugs into patients, where we're really starting to get it through the clinical trial process, we're looking for ways to really shave off years if we can, because we have many, many of the drugs. For example, we actually launched uh, three drugs this year. Uh, uh, one of which was for uh, a condition that actually has no treatment for. And so the faster we can get drugs to patients, the faster unmet needs of patients can get met. And then the third area, as, as we talked about, was really in the area of digital health. And again, that's trying to uh, obtain a step change in how patients are diagnosed, treated, and monitored. And I think if, Anyone um, who's listening to this has ever had a family member who uh, maybe has been through a cancer diagnosis journey or some serious disease. I mean, it really is a labyrinth. It's quite complicated in the traditional medical care system because we really don't necessarily have well integrated or continuous care. And so digital tools, I think, will be able to uh, fill some of the seams uh, around the fragmentation of care and things like that. And so what we're really talking about are things like tools that, for example, help patients who were on a therapy uh, to help them uh, find ways to make sure that the therapy is working. So imagine diagnostics, digital companions, things like that, that can measure all sorts of uh, biological measures um, that not only can help you understand whether there's some kind of a, the, the intended effect of the drug is working, but also whether there's an unintended effect of the drug, particularly safety issues that can be found Another really interesting area is the role that digital tools are likely to play in the diagnosis of patients. So, as, as you may or may not know, cancer patients seventy five percent of the time sort of fail in their first rounds of therapy. and uh, a lot of it is trial and error. The, the interaction between specific either chemicals or proteins with a specific biology of an individual person is actually pretty complicated. And in a lot of times, you may see have a situation where it could take a year or more. For a cancer patient to actually find a therapy that will work. And if you have something like lung cancer, which is a particularly aggressive, fast-moving disease, a year is probably too long. So to the degree that you can bring technology to bear that actually can help you understand things like the specific genomics uh, or epigenomics of a specific patient and link those with the specific therapies that are there to really help the best patients get on therapy sooner, but also try to screen out patients that might not be good candidates, I mean, that is really I think a holy grail for a lot of medicine, particularly in um, very, very serious diseases like cancer.
0: Remarkable. That's a that must be an enormously gratifying to think about the the role that you and your team are playing to uh, lead to better outcomes uh, for people who are the ultimate users of the products you uh, produced. I would love to understand a bit more about how you, since since a portion of what you described is monitoring patients and working with them to understand the efficacy uh, of what it is they're taking, the interactions with, uh, as you pointed out, their their biology leading to better outcomes. Can you talk a bit about the collaboration with patients and different personas, let's say, uh, in in order to fine tune the way in which you draw the data, the necessary data to to make better conclusions, to course correct, uh, and so forth? How does that collaboration come about?
1: Yeah. You know, patients are um, obviously highly motivated, but it depends on the disease. But I mean, certainly in the case of cancer, you're not going to find anyone more motivated than a healthy 35-year-old that's been diagnosed with cancer. So there are obviously any tools uh, that can be brought to bear that help them manage the disease or manage the risk. I mean, they're up for. I think most of the collaboration, when you think about the development of these tools, tends to be with physicians, right? So if you, you think about, at, at the end of the day, Patients are relying on physicians who are the trusted care providers and uh, as well as nurses. And so a lot of the tools and the, and the research and collaboration that we do, uh, these are with companies like the Mayo Clinic or University of Southern Florida or MD Anderson Cancer Center or you know other areas where we're doing work in cardiac care. What, what they really look at is these are the people who, who know and meet patients every day. And if you're going to implement or introduce tools into the clinical workflow system, it has to be something that works for doctors. It's important to understand that on average, the average doctor's visit between a patient and doctor was 17.4 minutes and um, median length is 15 minutes. And uh, on general, patients talk for about five minutes, physicians talk for about five minutes, and the rest is usually things being keyed into a keyboard. So you don't have a lot of window of time to introduce a lot of new and different things. So a key part here is to make sure that you can build tools embedded uh, that physicians will find simple. They don't want a lot of alerts that tell them you know, all sorts of things are are going wrong when they're not. So they they can't they don't have a high tolerance for false alerts. Uh, and patients will do you know whatever the doctors tell them, presuming that they have a you know a risk benefit analysis in their head that's positive. And most patients really want to know whether their therapy is working and, and whether or not there's anything that needs to be intervened. And obviously, doctors are the same way. So um, I think post-COVID, we've seen a big transition in a much more open-mindedness in moving much more treatment at home. And that's doctors like that, um, hospital systems like that. As you probably know, we're we have an, an aging population, so we're going to have older, sicker people, and not nearly enough doctors or hospitals to take care of them. And so, to the degree that digital tools can be an extension of what a hospital is. I I think that's win-win all around. And certainly many patients uh, don't like having to drive 30, 40, 50 minutes. Sometimes it's hours if you live in certain parts of the country to to get get actual care. So, I mean, these tools are a natural fit for uh, not not only uh, solutions that patients are looking for, but also uh, solutions that help solve some real-world problems we have in the healthcare system today.
0: Talk a bit about the team that you have around you. Uh, so much of what you're describing is uh, remarkably innovative. it is uh, as strategic as it comes uh, in terms of you know helping helping lead to better outcomes for for patients. Uh, talk a bit about the sorts of skills that are on the rise uh, on the team that you have built in order to deliver what you've described.
1: Yeah, so we we really sort of, I see three legs of the stool, so to speak, uh, particularly in digital health. So we have uh, one area of focus that's on unmet medical needs. So this is really going to be people with PhDs and MDs who are on the team. And so these are people that understand, uh, for example, we have one person on our team who used to be uh, on the faculty at Cornell in the cardiology department who's helping lead and figuring out what types of projects we could do in, in cardiology. And a very simple example there is we have a, a very exciting project with a uh, collaboration with a couple academic institutions to take ECGs. So you're familiar, anyone who's been in a hospital has seen the the little blips that are basically measuring um, uh, certain aspects of of how your heart works. Uh, We're able to sort of uh, build deep learning models on top of those ECGs through some partnerships that we're working with uh, that actually can start to diagnose things or at least create an alert for the types of things Um, that otherwise we didn't realize were even discernible on an ECG, which is actually really exciting because typically you may may be able to see an arrhythmia pretty easily, but other types of very unusual diseases like uh, certain types of uh, uh, dysfunctional uh, heart muscle issues. It's called myotrophic cardiopathy, but it's basically a dysfunction of muscle growth within the heart. These things are discernible from ECGs. And so we have people that understand the medical side of that because At the end of the day, if you're going to ask cardiologists to sort of trust some of these systems, you really need to understand their view of how they think about patient workflow and how they treat patients. Uh, The second leg of the stool really is around making sure that it fits well into the BMS profile. So we want to make sure that we're working on products that are in our sweet spot where we already have products and treatment, because that's going to be, that's going to tend to be the areas that not only do we have a commercial interest, but also we're going to have the expertise. And so that's the areas that we're really going to do well. And then the third leg of the stool is really around product management. I'm sure uh, many of your other um, people that you've interviewed talk about sort of IT kind of moving from service management to product management. But it's the idea that you'll need to iterate on these products because you might have an academic idea that seems very interesting. But when you actually get it in the hands of of end users, it, it sort of takes on a life of its own. And so we have those three disciplines sort of coming together to make sure that anything we put into the market, number one, solves an unmet need. Number two is it fits nicely with our existing portfolio, either the commercial products we sell or things we have in the clinical trial pipeline. Uh, And and three, that makes sure that we're executing efficiently and effectively because these products in the end are actually highly regulated. So it's important we have the same level of quality and rigor and standards that we do uh, for any drug that we launch.
0: And fascinating, Greg, to hear you talk about the disciplines that come together on your team. Uh, Gosh, it it doesn't seem like that long ago that uh, the the thought of having people who have PhDs or MDs and the disciplines relevant to the business, generally speaking, occupying a you know a, a, a tech and digital team might seem you know uh, impossible, and yet now. Uh, during this this uh, day and age where there's so much more um, un- uncommon bedfellows, there's collaboration across the traditional silos of, uh, of an organization. There's you know in fact, product teams as you as you say, that bring together disciplines from from again across traditional uh, you know, business areas or or uh, thought processes in order to deliver something better and faster. Uh, it really is representative uh, y- an extraordinary version of this in what you describe.
1: Yeah, as well said, I think a lot of people think about designing medicine as being sort of an endeavor in science, and it is, right? It's you, We have expertise in chemistry and biology. But I mean, you have to consider, if you, if you think about the last 100 years, uh, we, we've added 25 years of life expectancy. And that's really come from human-led innovation in modern medicine. So these are things like um, vaccines and um, uh, synthetic insulin and obviously large molecules and, and, and just traditional small molecule drugs. But I think if you if you really look at this in detail, I mean, there's 40 trillion cells in the human body. Uh, each one of those cells has about 1 trillion molecules in it. Uh, that's seven octillion atoms, if you add it all up, and any one of those atoms out of place could cause, cure, or prevent a disease. And um, when you think about the number of possible chemicals that can be synthesized, that's 10 to the 60th power of possible chemicals, of which only a very small fraction of chemicals have ever been synthesized by human beings in the lab. So when you really think about um, what's the future of medicine, it's really a computational, it's a search space problem. The ability to not only design drugs that actually can work and target uh, much more targeted aspects of diseases, uh, but, but being able just to see what even would be possible is one of these things where it's just not possible, given the number of permutations here where you can just, you know, no company, no matter how large or even an industry, could possibly be able to scan all of that. So the idea of being able to use things like deep learning to help scientists figure out what to hone in on, what targets might be more interesting, and once we find a target that's interesting, how we might design a drug in a way that is you know optimally designed for the drug to actually attach to the antigen in the body. So this is, if you're familiar with Google's AlphaFold, it's basically a very similar problem. I mean, this is the future of pharmaceuticals, the future of medicine, uh, will be an intersection of chemistry, biology, and uh, computer science.
0: And it's remarkable to hear, as you describe that, Greg, what sort of like historically has been referred to as knowledge management, the ability to kind of take discovery research that's previously been done mm-hmm. and build upon it as, and, and reduce the possibility of reinventing the wheel, of of doing work twice uh, when that's not necessary. It sounds like the the combination of of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, together with better, you know, means of categorizing and de- developing the the appropriate taxonomy associated with the research that that's happened before, is leading to a faster pace towards ultimate discovery. Is that is that a fair way of uh, uh, of describing it?
1: It is. I mean, uh, it's really pretty pretty observational that you pointed to data. It, it, you might be surprised to learn that about you know we, we've all talked about big data for a long time, but about thirty percent of all data that exists in the world is healthcare data. And so it really is, I mean, the ultimate quintessential big data problem. And a lot of the data that we do get, whether it comes out of clinical trials, uh, we have data that we can procure from certain agencies. We have hospital systems and collaborators that share information. We have our own experiments that we do in the labs. And I view that as a little bit like sort of like an oil well, right? It's pumping oil out of the ground but you really do need more gasoline to move the car. And so the refinement of that data and being able to provide meaning to it, you were sort of really referring to how you translate. You talked about knowledge management, but really how you refine that data into information that can connect together is really, I think, probably the biggest challenge that we face in the industry. Um, But again, it's as you start to move um, a lot of our work from maybe what used to be supervised learning to more of the unsupervised sort of deep learning, the use of transformers, I mean, that really is the sweet spot, right? Because if you're not able to either manually or even partially uh, manually annotate the information, you have to rely more and more on algorithms to try to uh, pull information together, uh, which really is, you know, that is the hardest part of this is to try to take the information, the data that you do have, and try to refine it into something that can be usable because the scale uh, of this data is just so massive, it's it could be really overwhelming.
0: Yeah, finding those needles in a haystack are are challenges, but thankfully, uh, improvements are being made to make it easier. I suppose, Um, you know, I, I, Greg, you've been a a technology leader across numerous massive organizations around the world, and one thing that I've always appreciated about your orientation and anyone who's who's listening to this interview can hear the the words you use, the your familiarity with the. The, the science behind the work that's being done in your organization your you know familiarity with different disease areas and some of the conundrums associated with uh, developing solutions to those and so on that you you are uh, you know a very business-minded technologist somebody who is you know immerses yourself very deeply in all that the business does uh, so that you are able to direct your team uh, to to the most uh, strategic uh, areas for the organization as a result of that. Uh, and I know you also you, you you have a history of getting very involved in sort of the P and L uh, of your organizations. Some, something that's been lacking historically among some of your peers as as technology and digital leaders, perhaps being a bit more focused on the you know the the um, uh, the bottom line part of the profit equation as opposed to the top line, uh, or at least of course a balance between the two. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own kind of process in. Uh, be Becoming a more complete business executive who happens to run technology, and how that evolution happened for you,
1: yeah, it's I think it's a little bit luck, probably. I mean I've been in i t for maybe fifteen years or so, but the first you know ten years or so of my career were in p l roles. Um, now in technology, uh, and so I saw things from that vantage point. and i but i but I think it's happened really over the last ten to fifteen years is i t. Uh, has sort of evolved from a back office technology, right, where you, you know, just needed to have a reliable network and video conference setups that worked. You needed to have SAP make sure that you could you know take orders, uh, make product and close the books. But it really is, as, as I'm sure everyone who's listening to this knows, I mean, IT has really kind of come into its own as being a strategic enabler and a differentiator for many companies. And Obviously, when you talk about differentiation, you you really have to get closer to the top line of the company and and not just the, you know, how you're managing cost. Um, You know, I I guess for me, um, a couple of benefits that I've seen is because I haven't been in IT my whole career, you know, I have the the benefit of seeing what an IT organization looks like from the other side. And I, I think that has built up some empathy for me uh you know we've all we've all you know sort of know the stories around processes in IT that are these tropes around closing tickets versus solving problems and i and i think having been part of that it's really something that i relate to because if you've been in IT your whole career it's a bit hard to read the label from inside the bottle and i think if you've seen it from the outside it really is helpful to see it from a business user's point of view uh, I think the second thing is that, uh, when I think about the role that a technology leader in 2022 needs to be good at, um, there's I sort of view it like a Venn diagram. On one side, there's, you know, what does technology make possible? And then the other circle is sort of, what's the problem opportunity space of the business? But the magic is really where the two things overlap. And so you, you really can't be just a deep in technology and not really understand the way the business works, or you'll fail to apply that technology to to real problems. And similarly, if you understand the business, but you're not deep enough in technology, you know you're you're going to be you know able to commiserate with all the challenges the company has, but you're not going to be able to find and know which technology makes sense in what order because uh, there's a lot of false profits in the uh, in the IT industry and, and and what you hear about and read about in magazines. And so, really, being able to discern the difference between what's uh, signal and what's noise is, is really challenging. I think the last thing that I really learned from being in roles where I had a sales quota or some sort of a P&L responsibility is the outcomes are very, very clear cut. I mean, you know month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, whether or not you're achieving your objectives. IT is more difficult, right? It's, it's a much more difficult thing to measure progress on. Uh, and so when you really have immersed yourself in a very, very tangible business results that you've been held accountable to, I think it makes it easier to prioritize and um, almost make prioritization more ruthless. Uh, because if you think about an IT, I mean, everybody there's a lot of great ideas. If you went, if I went around to every employee in BMS, I'd get at least three ideas uh, that would be reasonably good to pursue. That'd be 100,000 ideas, right? So you can't pursue all of them. But I think, again, anchoring yourself to the problem and business opportunities that are at a high level. You know what's important, uh, and then also being able to know that you're really looking for measurable outcomes, I think, is important. So I think I think it's definitely helped me. Um, number one, be more comfortable wading into those waters, but also really, you know, taking responsibility to make sure that that the technology we bring to bear is actually relevant to the, to the real problems the company has.
0: Yeah, interesting. I we've we've talked about a number of of rising trends of great relevance to your organization that you are riding currently and investing in. Uh, I wonder if there are others you would call out as you think to the future, Greg, that have you particularly excited.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that for sure the biggest one, and I've talked about this a few times, is AI and ML. I mean, every industry is looking at this. I think in our industry, it is is particularly interesting because of the the computational search space we talked about. Um, I think we have a lot of other interesting areas, whether it is in the area of automation and robotic process automation are things that we're very much looking at. Um, We're looking a lot around uh, the future of collaboration. Uh, I I think we all know that this sort of back to work thing has made things like meetings that are half in person, half remote, really challenging. And so I think there's a lot of work we need to do around, um, and, and there's a lot of new technology on the horizon with vendors in that space. Um, and I think also as we collaborate with third parties, I think it becomes increasingly important to be able to share data in a way that is secure, that maintains privacy and trust between uh, the constituents that have to collaborate there. And so, I mean, there's just many, many different things we could be doing. But but at a high level, anything that we can do that will result in bringing more medicines to more patients faster is is really what we're going to focus on.
0: I wanted to conclude, Greg, with a reflection on your part, if you don't mind, as to some of the keys to your own success. You've, as I mentioned, been a uh, a, a, a tech and digital chief at multiple organizations now across different industries, different geographies. What have been some of the difference makers for you along your way that have have enabled you to reach these heights across a variety of different companies?
1: Uh, I think that... uh the desire to always be on the steep end of a learning curve i mean this is a little bit about my personality i'm just a very curious person and uh you know when i feel like i've kind of mastered my job i feel like i need to do something different because uh, i just think that once you 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 become too secure in your own knowledge is the moment that you lose your edge a little bit because you you feel like you've seen it all done it all and there's not a lot new to learn and so i think that by just forcing myself into a reset process by which I'm in the deep end of the pool constantly sort of forces me to stay sharp. So I think that's important. One of the things I've done that I think, I don't know that I'd recommend it, but it really worked for me is I've actually really tried to get very technically deep, it actually way more than I, I, someone at my level should. Uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I took a, um, a very detailed class and decided to become very fluent in Python, which is a coding language. And while I don't use that in my day-to-day job, I mean, it totally opened up uh, my mind to the power of open source, to the power of really like, simplicity and elegance and being able to get problems solved. Uh, I think in big Fortune 500 companies in IT, we've become so addicted to packages that we sort of we've lost connectivity to what actually creating something new from scratch looks like. And I think that's one of the reasons why it feels different to work for a startup than for a big company. small companies can't afford big software packages, and so they have to build things from scratch. And actually, it's being able to appreciate that um, there are different tools used for different jobs, and not being afraid to uh, to build again. Because I think, as I mentioned before, as IT has become more relevant for competitive differentiation, you know, as you get closer to customer and value creation for the company, you have to get more comfortable in doing whatever it takes. To achieve value. And sometimes that's actually building things. Uh, and so I think having actually been hands-on and tried to build things myself, I think really you know helped open my mind to not only the benefits of it, but also the risks of it, which is technical debt and difficulty in scaling and things like that. So I felt like really getting hands-on and actually coding uh, as a CIO was just tremendously helpful for me, even if it's not something I do in my day-to-day job.
0: Uh, great examples, Greg. I really appreciate you sharing a bit of uh, the way in which you're oriented and how uh, some of the things that you've done have led to uh, outsized success for you. Well, Greg Myers, thank you for for joining me on Technovation. As in the past, a wonderful conversation reflective of the remarkable work you and your team are doing, uh, literally saving lives. Uh, keep up the good work and always great speaking with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for for giving us a chance to tell our story, Peter.